Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. If you need a Bible, there's one on that table, but Mike's got it, so never mind. He's sorry. I guess they're all gone. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week, and so we're going to start at verse 23. Just to recap on, on some of the things we've been touching on. Uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's the triumphant entry. As he, he moves into Jerusalem, the people are shouting. We, we touched on it even a little bit this last Sunday with the children declaring praise there in the temple. But before that happens, he overturns the tables. There's all kinds of pandemonium that's taking place as he exclaims that they have turned the house, which is the temple, which was supposed to be a house of prayer, into a den of robbers, making money off of the people, hindering them from being able to come freely to the Lord. And so as this takes place, we see that the people are kind of in this place where the kids are celebrating, the poor are coming into the temple, but the religious leaders are getting a little bit irked. They're a little upset at what's taking place. As Jesus goes on, he curses a fig tree that has leaves but has no fruit. We talked about how that was symbolic of the nation of Israel that was supposed to be uh, an example to the world around them, but they weren't bearing fruit. They had the appearance of religion, but they didn't have what was really necessary. All their regulations was not producing salvation. And so Jesus curses the tree. It's an example. And we start in verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts. Now, remember, he's, he's been in the temple before. He's coming back again. Imagine what you're thinking if you're at one of the money tables. You're holding on. Get quick, put the doves away. Jesus is coming back. He's going to overturn everything. I love it. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven? or of human origin. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we were afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. <laughs> then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Father, as we once again look at your words, may our hearts be open to hear what your spirit would speak to us. Jesus, we get to eavesdrop in these conversations. We, we get to be a part of a conversation that took place over a thousand years ago, but that's taking place right now in our own hearts. And we welcome, Father, this time. We look forward to you doing something deep within us, ministering to us, teaching us, giving us guidance and instruction, waking us up, shaking us up, Lord, helping us to maintain 
this life that you give, Lord, so that it doesn't become stagnant. It doesn't become complacent and common. Father, may it be an abundance flowing within us, Lord, and overflowing. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question, who gives you this authority? Now, why are they asking this question and what do they mean? What are your thoughts? Why do you think they're asking Jesus by whose authority do you come? Yes. They want to trap him. Okay. That they're wanting to trap him. Any other thoughts on why they would ask him this? I mean, think about this as we ask this question and wonder why they would ask this question. Jesus has been healing people in the temple. Just recently, after he overturned the tables, he was healing all manner of people that were coming to him. But they're asking him, by what authority? Yes. Maybe they think, yeah, it's a demonic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we did see that they said that once before. It is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he does these things. And that's when Jesus said, well, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your prophets cast them out? But if I, by the spirit of God, do cast them out, then the kingdom of God is among you. And so a couple of ideas here. Remember, he just wrecked havoc on their business. He just threw the tables. He just kind of made a mockery of them. And now he's in the temple teaching. They're going to want to know, what gives you the right to be in here teaching? They're wanting to know that. And, and more specifically, what they mean here is, what rabbi are you under? In other words, if you are a rabbi, you were taught by another rabbi. And so now it is, I am under Gamaliel or whatever the rabbi might be. I am under this rabbi, and so I am in this kind of vein, and I am in this authority. They're wanting that. Now, I don't know how far back it goes, because eventually there had to be the first rabbi that this authority came under. But they're wanting to know, whose who's rabbi do you follow? And you think about that with Jesus, and it's like, well, of course, there isn't a rabbi over him. It is God himself, who is his father, who is giving him insight. Jesus said, I don't say anything unless the father gives it to me to say. I don't even do anything unless the father tells me to do it. Everything that I do is directed by my heavenly father. And so that's who he is following. That's the authority. And and we recognize that, but they're wanting to get Jesus into a place where they can start controlling him. Like you said, trap him. At least that's what it would seem to be. And then Jesus' response is, again, unique. And I think there is so much that we can learn from this because then Jesus doesn't answer them, but he asks them a question. Have you noticed that Jesus asks a lot of questions? When he's debating back and forth, he asks a lot of questions. The woman who's caught in adultery in John chapter 9. The law says that we should stone her to death. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Woman, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Jesus has this way of, of getting to the point 
but making people think and not just throwing it out there. And why does Jesus ask this question about John's baptism? Why do you think he's bringing John into this? I mean, he tells us here. What's it say? (laughs) Yeah, he wants to know, do you believe that John the Baptist was a prophet? Because, as they say, well, if we say yes, then they'll say, why didn't you believe his testimony? In other words, John testified of Jesus' authority. Remember? He, he bore witness of Jesus. He's coming, whose shoes I'm not worthy to unloosen. I, I baptize him with water, but he's going to bap- or I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And so John testified of Jesus' authority. And so they, he asked them, what about John? What do you think about him? And they are trapped. They're stumped. And it's, again, one of these things that Jesus does. What's interesting is it revealed their intention. You see, their question showed no ethical concern of right or wrong or even true. When they asked Jesus, by whose authority are you coming, they didn't want to know if he was legit They didn't want to know if it was the right authority, if it was a true authority. All they cared about was how it affected them. And I think that's very telling. And that's something that causes me to think, how do I respond? Am I just concerned with how it affects me? Or am I concerned with whether something is right, wrong, or, or even true? When I'm dialoguing with someone, do I just want to be right? Or do I have an ear to hear what is true so that I can learn, so that I can grow? Because I don't know everything. Neither do you. I don't have all the answers. I still have a lot to learn. We all do. But if I'm in a frame of mind where I just want to prove myself right and I'm not concerned with what is right, wrong, or true, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And many times when we get into dialogues or debates or even arguments, we're not trying to establish what is right or wrong. We're trying to establish ourselves as right. And that's what we care about. I had a a gentleman emailed me today, or not today, this week, and wanted to get together with me and talk about unity in the church, uh, specifically in the churches in Upland. He's doing some paperwork uh, for his master degree, and he asks he's asking different pastors if they can meet with him, and he wanted to talk about unity. And when I was talking to him, he was a neat guy. I was talking with him, and he said that, you know, he had this idea because when he was at this event, it was a, a worship conference of some sort or some musical event. He said he was struck by all these different denominations that were there, and they were all celebrating, and there seemed to be this unity. And he's wondering, why can't it be that way all the time? And so his question was, you know, what do you think about unity? How important is it? 
And we had a great conversation just regarding that. And one of the things that I conveyed to him is, you know, if, if by unity you mean we are wanting to do the will of Christ and seeing the will of Christ accomplished, then I think it's of utmost importance. As Jesus said in John 17, Father, I, I pray that they would be one even as you and I are one. Jesus was one with the Father because he did what the Father said. And if by unity you mean we are all committed to doing the work of Christ, then I think it's absolutely important. If you mean that it's that we all get along and do things together, then I don't think it's that important at all. John and Barnabas, I mean, Paul and Barnabas, they left and went their separate ways. Paul talked to the church in Jerusalem and said, hey, the Gentiles cannot be put under the same yoke that you are under. You've got to understand there is differences here. And so I think there is a different expression that can take place in different people. And that's fine. Bless you. But what's important is these different expressions, are they still under this same and common goal of serving Christ? Because that's what's important. And so these guys here, if they like music loud, that's fine. If these people here, you know, they like to do cartwheels, that's fine. And if these people here, you know, those kinds of things, whatever. It's not like we have to all get together and try and, you know, let's all do something together. Let's all just do the work of Christ together. But if I get to a place where I'm talking with another group of people and I want to prove myself right because I feel better about myself. And so they tell me what they're doing and what they believe and I think, huh, well, you know what? I think what we're doing is better. And I, all of a sudden I have this argument going on with them trying to elevate my position. I no longer care about the cause of Christ. I care about my cause, what I want to do. And I think we need to be careful of that, that we're not trying to just promote ourselves. And, and that's what we see happening here with the Jewish leaders. They're wanting to get control. They want control of the situation, and Jesus challenges them on it in a place where they, he knew they couldn't answer. If we say this, we say, uh, and interesting, they would answer, we don't know. How, you don't know? You're the religious, religious leaders, and you don't know if John was from God or just of human origin? That's telling. And so he, he shuts them up, and it won't be the last time, but he does so in a way that they have to actually respond. And I think that also is very telling because Jesus doesn't just tell them, I'm from God, John said so, there, that's it. He asks them a question, and what he does by asking them the question is exposes their intention. When you're talking with someone, for example, if there is a husband and wife and they're not getting along, and they're having some marital difficulties. Just telling them what they need to do. Well, you need to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you need to show respect for your husband as the church respects and honors Christ. Great. That, that's, they probably already know that if they've grown up in the church at all. But what's more telling, I find, is asking the question, what do you want 
your marriage to be? What do you want of your marriage? And what that gives me is insight into where the person is coming from. Well, I want my husband to stop doing this, and I want my husband to do this, and I want this, and I want my husband. Okay, so now I'm getting an understanding of what you want is for them to change. What you're not wanting is our marriage to be this. You're wanting him to be this because you believe that's the cause that's going to make your marriage this. But what it does is give me insight into intent. It doesn't just, here's the band-aid, fix it. It gives me insight into intent. And that's really what Jesus does all the time. What do you want? Well, I want this, I want that. Okay, now I know really what's the core, where you're coming from. And so if it's just, I want my wife to, you know, cook more food. I, I, want, I want, you know, whatever it is. I, it's the only one I could think of. Um, if I want this person to do this, that's different than what I want is our marriage to be good. I want our marriage to be healthy because that's telling me that you're open to change within yourself as well. But if it's, I just want that person to do this, I want that person to do that, then you're telling me what you're seeing is just the change needing to take place there. Now, it might need to. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I'm just getting insight into where it's coming from. Does that make sense? When you're talking with people, intent is everything. Because you can say the right things, but if your intention is for manipulation, for control, you've got a problem. And so Jesus gets to the intention. And, and I think we need to be aware of that and try and do that a little bit more in our dialogues and disagreements with people. He moves on and tells them a parable. Now, he's telling them this parable. Remember how Matthew does things. He kind of telescopes this. It, it's telling this parable right after this discourse on purpose. Just keep that in mind. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did his father what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. <laughs> what do you really mean, Jesus? Uh, for John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Did this go off? Oh, there it is. I don't got louder or quieter. Hello, can you hear me? <laughs> now, this parable of the two sons is only found here in Matthew. Now, at this time, who's Jesus talking to? Yeah, the Pharisees, right? He's talking to the religious leaders at the time. He's directing it to them, and he even brings up John afterwards. Okay, because who are the ones who listened and believed John the Baptist? It was the tax collectors. It was the prostitutes. 
They're the ones who were baptized and repented. They turned and said, we need to change our ways. The Pharisees, the the religious leaders, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, they just observed because they thought they had it together already. So they didn't need to repent. Yeah, those people, they were just kind of spectators. And so Jesus gives this illustration and the Jewish leaders who claimed to be doing the will of God did not listen to the prophet John about who Jesus was. They didn't listen to the prophet John the Baptist about the one he was preparing the way for. And so this parable is one that, again, is something that always gets back to just the obvious. Who's doing the will of God? The ones who are doing the will of God. Not the ones who say they're doing the will of God. Not the ones who look like they might be doing the will of God, but the ones who are actually doing the will of God. James talks about this. Don't just, you know, be hearers, but be doers. What good is faith if it doesn't have these works behind it? Then the faith means nothing. It's meaningless. But a a faith that has the actions, now you've got something. And, And this is true religion, right? Taking care of the widows, the orphans, those who are in need. That, that's actually doing those things. And so our faith, our belief in Jesus, what's it producing? It should be producing something in our lives. Now, so we don't get legalistic and we don't get to a place where we start setting, well, then if you're a follower of Christ, you need to be and make sure you don't, you know, you're never this and you're never that and you're never this. And so you got to stop, you know, going to the movies and you've got to stop, you know, going to restaurants that serve alcohol. And you've got, you know, you can start setting a list and say that proves. But really, there just has to be change continually taking place in our lives. God is always asking us to do something. He's always asking us to move forward in this kingdom that he is establishing. We're part of it. And so we are always either saying yes, sir, and not doing it, or maybe we're saying, no, I don't want to, but then we do it. Or maybe we're saying yes, and we actually do it. That'd be novel. You know, that'd be a great thing to happen. But he's always asking of us I have found that even though there were things in my life back when I first said yes to Jesus that changed, and some of them big things, some of them dramatic things, some of them you could say, oh, yes, man, that was obvious sin kind of things that you were doing and involved in, and oh, those things changed. But I have found that God always wants more holiness from me. He he always wants more of the core of who I really am. He he is trying to make me more and more like Jesus. And I am always either saying yes or no to him. And so even though he is directing this conversation to the religious leaders, and he by saying two sons, it's believed that he is talking to the, the Jewish people. 
because that it's, most people believe that he's speaking specifically to the Jews here and not referencing the Jews and the Gentiles as he does at times. At the same time, he is talking to obedience. And he's saying, who's going to do the will of my father? Well, it's the one who actually does it. And tax collectors and prostitutes can enter the kingdom of heaven before religious people if they believe the things that God says. Challenging. It's something that should sober us up and make us think. Because even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Believe him meaning John the Baptist. And again, he's referring to John the Baptist because John the Baptist is the prophet who spoke of Jesus giving him his authority. And that's where Jesus is kind of taking them in this conversation. So then he goes on a little further and he pushes a little bit deeper. Now, this parable is in all the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels that are similar, that were taken from the same sources. And so, verse 33 It says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent another servant to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, What will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is a marvel it is marvelous in our eyes therefore i tell you that the kingdom of god will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces anyone on whom it falls will be crushed when the chief priests and the pharisees heard jesus parables they knew he was talking about them <laughs> yeah no. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Once again, Jesus brings a parable, and now he's not just talking about the Jews between Jews. He's bringing in the Gentiles. He gives this illustration, and we have a good understanding of what he's talking about. As he talks about this landowner, 
We take that as being God, and the landowner sends the servants. This would be the prophets that God has sent throughout the nation of Israel's history, that they had beaten, that they had killed, that they had treated terribly. And then the landowner, God, says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son. They'll listen to him. And so here comes Jesus onto the scene, and they're saying, no, we're going to get rid of him because we're going to take this and be in charge of ourselves. And once again, what does Jesus do? He asks them a question. What's going to happen to the tenants? And they themselves say he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants. Do you hear what they're saying? They're telling what's going to happen. He's going to take that from them and give it to someone else who can take care of it. And Jesus reaffirms what they just said. He tells them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our sight. You have rejected. The cornerstone was the the capstone. It was the stone that everything was built upon. It was a stone that everything else had to rest on. If you didn't have that cornerstone, you couldn't go straight in this direction or straight in this direction. It was the chief stone. It was the one that was necessary for the building. And what happens if you reject what is necessary? How can you build anything if you're rejecting the foundation of what it is? And so you religious leaders at this time have rejected the chief stone. You, you've taken the vineyard owner's son and you're planning to kill him. Your prophets you've kicked out, you've beaten, you've mistreated because you want this for yourselves. And so he says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. They know he's talking about them because it says they, they perceived that he's talking about them. And they understand what he's saying. When he's talking to give these things to people who will produce fruit, he knows or they know that he means those who are outside of Israel. That is unheard of to them. That is an abomination. They will not stand for that. And you see, Matthew, his whole gospel, has been pointing us in this direction. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is where the kingdom of God is showing up. The kingdom of heaven is like this. And now it is moving out of the nation of Israel into the rest of the world, which was what it was supposed to do all along. They were supposed to be the light of the world, but if they weren't going to do that, then he was going to find a people that would. They were supposed to declare the works of God, but if they would stop, then God will find people who will. And that's exactly what's happening. And then he gives this powerful statement. Verse 44, it says, anyone who falls on this stone, what stone? This chief cornerstone. Christ is the rock. Anyone who falls on this rock 
will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. There's two choices here. We can fall on the rock and be broken to pieces, or the rock will fall on us and will be crushed. When you have something that is foundational, this chief stone, this person of Jesus, then you build on him. He doesn't build on you. And it's important to recognize that that's exactly what needs to take place, is that we need to build on him that our lives need to build on him and what he's doing. I think of Joshua when he's going into the promised land and Jericho's before him and he's going out there to survey the situation. And the angel of the Lord comes before Joshua and Joshua sees him and he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the angel of the Lord says, no. I'm not for you. I'm not for them. You have to be with me. And so many times we want God to be on our side, but what really needs to happen is we need to be on God's side. And so what we have to do is fall upon that rock, be broken, allow what Jesus says to have importance into our lives. And allow it to shape who we are. That or one day, his way is going to shape who we are, but it won't be in the way that we want. And how many times do we argue with the things that Jesus wants? The things that God desires for us. We, we don't allow them to break us. We want our own way. We want to hold on to our own identity or the things that we desire, maybe the things we lust after, maybe the things that satisfy us. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to fall, be broken, allow me to shape you. Because if you don't allow yourself to be broken, when I fall on you, you will be crushed. That's how it works. This is the chief stone. You you don't move the chief stone. The chief stone, the cornerstone, is what you build on. And so that's what we need to build our lives. And when they hear this, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for ways to arrest him, but they were afraid. And once again, what's amazing is the miracles that Jesus did, the things that he spoke about, instead of listening to them, hearing them, and rejoicing in them, it it violated their position. And they were more concerned with their position than the truth. I think that's always a danger for us in these things. Okay, we're going to go on to chapter 22 and finish one more parable because it's about the same things that Jesus, he keeps pushing things further and further. He was dealing with the Jews and the themselves. Now he's dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles. Now he's going to deal with the Jews, the Gentiles, and then deal with the Gentiles as well. And so verse 1 of 22, 
chapter 22, Jesus spoke to them again in a parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and they said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, but then, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, the other to his business, sorry. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was raged, enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to the servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go on to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Jesus getting heavy here. Okay. He's pushing things deeper still. Now, it's important to understand a little framework here of what's taking place. When a wedding was given, an invitation was given, oftentimes it didn't have an exact date or time. I know that's contrary to us. How can you send an invitation without a date and time? But that's what would happen. They would send an invitation. They'd say, hey, we're going to have a wedding. And then as the feast was getting prepared and as all the preparations were coming into place, they would then send out the invitation. Okay, it's going to be at this time now. And so the whole idea was get ready, have your plans ready, so when the invitation comes to give you the actual date and time, you will be prepared, and then you can come and celebrate. Because they had more difficulty in arranging all the things than we do today. And so the idea of, you know, hey, I'm having a feast, get ready, now go and let them know it's coming. That was something that they were used to. That was common. It was when it was ready, then you are told to come. Then you have the opportunity to respond. Now, as Jesus is talking about this and he's telling them this, he, he says that some, the servants, they actually heard the news, but, you know, they just went on to their field, others to their business. Normal things. They were just carrying on, doing things. These aren't bad things, take care of your business or to go to your fields. But then some of them mistreated the servants and killed them, okay? And that's a little extreme. But all these people refused to come. And so Jesus goes on and he says in verse 7, The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now, 
What do you think Jesus is talking about here? Who is he talking to? And what do you think this is about? Okay. He's kind of piggybacking on the other parables that he gave, you know, just recently where he talked to them. So, yeah, you've rejected the chief stone, you, you the vineyard and, and the tenants that were there. You didn't listen to the landowner. So it kind of comes alongside that wedding feast, talking about the Jews. Now, what about this whole gonna, army's going to destroy the murderers and burn the city? Any thoughts on that? Revelation stuff. Well, Matthew is writing this at probably about 80 to 90 AD, we guess. But at 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. Rome came in and devastated it. The temple was burnt to the ground. Stones were unturned to get the gold. It was laid waste. And so Jesus was talking about what was going to soon be happening. That, you know, you're rejecting the Messiah, and it's going to be bad. It makes you wonder, what would have happened had they received the message of Christ and who he was, if they would have changed their demeanor it might have changed their interaction with Rome altogether. But they didn't. And it led to devastation. All of Jerusalem was wiped out. And so it seems that Jesus is talking about this recent event, and Matthew is making it very dramatic as he had experienced it. Yes? Remember when Paul talked to the Romans, and he talked about submitting to authority? that authority was ordained by God. What would have happened to the Jewish nation if instead of fighting against trying to establish themselves more and more, rebelling against Rome, they would have saw Rome as being over them and submitted to them, showing reverence to God, basically, and we're going to respect that authority instead of trying to find, fight against them. You know, Jeremiah did the same thing. In chapter 29:11, that passage that we love, I have... This I have for you a future and a hope, you know, that God talks to the nation of Israel. The prophet declares, I have given you a future and a hope. Therefore, go back to your homes. They're in slavery at the time and make yourself comfortable there. Raise your children. He talks about, I'm going to deliver you. But right now you just need to live here in this time of slavery. What would have happened had the nation of Israel had that mindset here in Rome? It might have stopped the conflict that was there, and maybe things would have changed. Just wonder, because basically you guys are rejecting the truth, and so you're pushing your agenda, and this is what's going to happen. Matthew is writing back on it, having seen it take place having seen these things played out. And so he's writing this, and he's being very descriptive because their city was burned. It was destroyed. It was leveled. And so what he is writing about here is something that they had experienced not very long ago. And so it's something that is taking place there. 
And so I, I think this is talking about that, not revelation stuff. You know, this is talking about things that were happening there. But then he goes on and he says to the servants at the wedding banquet, he, he goes on, okay, so after this, this time where God has gone out into the streets and he's called everyone. Now, the parable before, it was going out to those who were other people, the Gentiles. And so now we can assume he's talking again about the Gentile people, about us. These Gentile people, so that they're coming, they're invited in, and they go out to the streets and they bring them all in. And so they're there, and everyone's having a good time at the wedding banquet. All right, we got invited to the wedding banquet. And then there's this guest. The king came and he saw the guest, and he noticed that he wasn't wearing wedding clothes. And so he says, hey, how'd you get in here without these clothes? And the man was speechless, and so he's tied up, thrown outside into darkness. There's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then he gives this haunting statement, many are invited, but few are chosen. That doesn't mean I'm inviting you, but then I'm not going to choose you. It, it has to do with the choice that this person made not to wear the wedding clothes. Now, we don't know why he's wearing, not wearing the wedding clothes. It could be that the king actually gave these garments to the people. That's what a lot of people believe, that you're coming into here, have the wedding clothes, come on in. Take these wedding because these people are invited on the streets. Do they just happen to have a pair of wedding clothes in the back pocket? You know? And so the odds are that the king said, here, put on these garments and come in. But this guy didn't put on the garments. And so now what does he mean by these wedding clothes? What are your thoughts? What do you think he means? Mike? Could be that he came in without an invitation. Well, it could be that to come in, you needed to put the wedding clothes on and you didn't. How did, so how'd you get in there without those? Could be. Any other thoughts? That he had the opportunity, but he said, I don't want to wear these wedding clothes. They're too stuffy. I like my kids in suits. Verse 10, so the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding was filled with a guest. So the bad would be those who were, well, I think it's talking about their viewpoint, the, the people who were thought of as bad. You know, it could be, again, the tax collectors, prostitutes, kind of the people that Jesus has been talking about. You know, those would be considered the bad. The good would be the people who had moral more standing, you know, upright and morals. So, again, we have the hindsight to look back and say, this is what has taken place. You know, right now, the, the church is filled with people who are both, quote, good and bad, as far as how their standing is. People who have good standings and, you know, nice people and then people who don't. You know, it, it's amazing because we tend to give more, I don't know, attention to those who were bad but now are doing better, you know, instead of those who have, like, always been good. You know, there are some kids who are always good, you know, but we don't pay attention to them because they're not as novel. You know, we, we, we want the ones who have been bad and now are good because we can use them. Oh, look at, you know, Joey here was really bad, but now he's good. But, you know, Stephen here, he's just been a good kid his whole life, you know. And so we don't, you know, we should applaud Stephen, 
you know, Stephen, you've been good your whole life. How'd you do it? You know, that's, that's who we want to listen from, you know. Um, so I think good and bad could be just that kind of thing where the people who've had a good standing in their positions morally, you know, as well as in society and those bad would be, again, the tax collectors who are thieves, the prostitutes, those who are considered bad. So these clothes, these wedding clothes are real important. Without them, it's pretty hairy. You get kicked out, you get bound hand and foot and thrown into this darkness. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Did you guys hear that? She's saying a person who's not wearing the garment is a person who's not clothed with the Christ righteousness, and it's just more of a religious person. So turn to Isaiah 61, verse 10 kind of piggyback on top of that. Verse 10, Isaiah 61, verse 10. I de delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We do need to be clothed with his righteousness. We do need the garment of salvation. And I think that that's exactly what Jesus is talking about, that there has to be this garment that covers you. And I don't think it would be that difficult for them to understand as they start looking at, you know, being covered, the idea and wearing this garment, something that you need to be a part of this celebration. And so Jesus is saying, how are we going to enter into this ultimate wedding? What garment do we get to put on if it's not the garment that is given to us by him? And I think that's exactly what it's talking about, that if we aren't clothed with his garment, then... We shouldn't be there, and we won't be there. We'll get bound, we'll get thrown out. And Jesus is making this statement, and I think, Mike, what you said, it's real important, the good and the bad were called, because that speaks directly against the religious notion that if you're going to be in this place that God has for us, heaven, the presence of God, then you have to be, quote, good. Because, no, if you are a person who is bad, but then gets clothed with this garment, you can stay. The question is then, what is this garment? And I believe this garment is Christ himself. The righteousness that he gives that we need to be clothed in. And those other passages that you mentioned, I am the door, no one comes in except through me, the same thing. You don't get into the wedding without this garment. I, I need to clothe you. And it's my righteousness that clothes you. And if not, it's not good. And this final passage, where, or the final words where he says, many are invited, but few are chosen. I think that that's an important thing to recognize that 
God has invited, but the ones he chooses are the ones who choose to clothe themselves with this garment. It's not that, well, I didn't, you know, I've invited you, but I've rigged it so you can't, I'm not going to choose you, you know. Because that's kind of what, you know, this kind of Calvinistic, yeah, idea is, you know. Yeah, God invites you, but yeah, he's rigged it so you can't come, you know. Um, That's just contrary to everything we see about Christ and and we know about God who tells us to choose. And, And so we're invited, but the way we get chosen is by how we clothe ourselves. And so we have to clothe ourselves with Christ. All these things, now think about this, clothing ourselves with Christ, okay, uh, that's dealing with us very personally because he's talking now about the Gentiles and this whole idea of our realm, so to speak, not just the Jews, including the Jews, but not exclusively to them. But then he's talked about the vineyard owner and his kids, the one who did the will and the one who didn't do the will, he's really covering a lot of ground here and is trying to establish some really important points. And they're not just, you know, sort of. I mean, they're very distinct. We need this wedding garment. We need to listen and do. We need to fall on this rock and be broken. I mean, there's a lot of things that are required of us throughout these parables and these illustrations that are important for us to to take hold of. They're vital. No matter where we are, if we are one of the Jews or a religious person, if we're moving into this Gentile establishment of the kingdom and it takes place, there are still requirements. And so we need to find ourselves always asking that question, have I fallen on the rock? Am I doing the will of the Father? Do I have his righteousness on? Those are important things to to take place. And and one of the problems that I see in in myself and, and happening in Christendom is we want to make things very, I don't know, we, we, we want a date. We want this, okay, when were you saved? Give me the date, the time, the event. And salvation many times is a process that takes place that is difficult to, you know, say, okay, it happened then. It happened now. It happened at this point. God started the work here. The work showed up and there was a confession here. And then the work continued in progression and sanctification here. And so it's, I think it's a disservice to try and say, okay, this is the point, this is the time, and then rest on your laurels. I got saved back on, you know, July 20-something on 19, whatever. That's when I got saved. Well, salvation is a process. You, you were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved, the Scripture tells us. And so don't make it less than what it is. It's a continual relationship with God. And I don't think God lets us go. I really don't. I I believe that there's only one kind of life he gives, and it's eternal life. But the question is, do I have it? Am I wearing the garment? Am I the son who who is out in the vineyard? 
Because sometimes I'm the son who says, yeah, and I'm not. And I need to repent. And sometimes I'm doing good, and sometimes I'm not. Sometimes I've got the right place in my heart and mind, and sometimes I don't. And I don't want to rest on a date and on a prayer. I want to rest on the relationship. He's not going to kick me out. He's invited the good and the bad. I just need to be there. I need to show up. I need to be present with him. And I think this is something that constantly pushes at us. God is very graceful. His mercies are an ending. And you see the people throughout Scripture who he calls his kids. Righteous Lot. Oh, my gosh. Lot? Righteous? Are you serious? David, a man after his own heart. David? I mean, so many of these people. Samson as an example in the Hall of Faith. Really? God's very gracious. And I think it has to do with being present with him. Living with him. Walking with him. Salvation isn't a date, isn't a prayer. Salvation is a relationship with Jesus. And it's important to recognize that so that we don't make it less than. I believe completely that there should be security. Assurance, I should say. Let's be scriptural. I should have assurance in my relationship with God. How do you have assurance? By being in the relationship. You're not in the relationship. How do you have insurance? How do you have that assurance? Does that mean you're not saved? You're asking the wrong questions. It's not a matter of, do you, are you saved or aren't you saved? Do, are you walking with him or not? Is the wedding garment on you or not? Are, are you living in the righteousness of Christ or not? That's the question. Instead of trying to find out, well, are you saved? Aren't you saved? How do you get saved? Because then, okay, I did this, this, and this. I must be saved. I don't know. Maybe you don't have the garment on. And then, man, you don't want to be that guy then. Is the garment on? Are you saying yes? That's what matters. And, and so, again, it, God isn't going to lock himself out. There's no loopholes, you know, how to get into heaven without actually being in the right place. It just doesn't work. you got to be legit. Are you? I don't know. Well, good, then push forward. Be legit. Say yes to the Father. Put the garment on. Have that assurance that you are in the wedding, there to celebrate, and part of the kingdom of heaven. Any questions? Yes. You see, I disagree. I disagree. If my kids are grumbling and, and complaining, but they do it, good. They did it. Well, I, I think what he wants is, again, that obedience. I mean, the whole point of that parable is, you know, these people who shouldn't have been there, who, who, were, tax, who were thieves, who were prostitutes, they said, okay, we'll listen. And God said, okay, I'll take you. You know, you, you did the right thing. Those are the people who he's talking to. And, and so the condition of your heart is important, but ultimately you're going to do what you want to do. 
ultimately. You're, you're going to end up doing the things that you want to do. And sometimes, you know, when it, my kids are grumbling and complaining, but they're still being obedient, you know what? They're still being obedient. And I'll take that. I'll, I'll take that over the alternative. You know, you want to do things joyfully and you want to have that right attitude, but it's okay sometimes to be bummed and it's okay to, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the intents of our heart are, are going to be exposed. Again, intention. You know, sometimes I want to help people out, but I hate whatever I'm doing. You know, Karina and I talk about that all the time. You know, it's like, oh, should we? Yeah, we should. <laughs> you know, do you want to? No, I don't. <laughs> you think of it, too. I mean, the son had the choice. And he chose to do it. Even though he said he wasn't, he, he chose to. You know, and, and so I, I think it's kind of talking about a different thing, actually. I mean, you're saying I'm not going to because that's not what I'm about. But yeah, you know what? I am going to. Made the choice to do something different. And I think that's kind of what he's talking about is, you know what? I don't want to, but I'm going to make the choice because it's the right choice. Well, well, I think that's a good struggle. You know, I think we all struggle with that. We all struggle with um, giving of ourselves. Yeah, some people more than others, you know, but at the same time, I think we all can struggle with our time. I mean, become selfish with our time and then, you know, make the choice, well, I'm going to. And it's a good thing. I mean, I mean, truthfully, there are times where it's like, okay, oh, tonight's the love feast. Oh, I'm tired. You know, it's like... I, I guess I shouldn't confess this much, but, you know, I'll be thinking, oh, man, I'm, I'm really tired. You know, I could really, I'll just stay home, watch Breaking Bad or something, you know, I mean, I just, but actually, when I am here, I'm glad I'm here, you know, and, and it doesn't matter if there's, you know, like over 30 people or just five people, I'm always blessed, and I'm always thankful that I came, and I'm always happy that I, I take time and remember the Lord's table. Um, and so y you get what you give. And sometimes that's just the way it is. You know, we are hesitant, but then we do it anyway. And God says, good, you know, and, and it's a good thing. And sometimes we just have to say, say, yes, <laughs> you feel better now that I confessed my sins to you. <laughs> So I think, yeah, doing is an important thing. Sometimes we're hesitant, so. Yep, many are called. And the whole point is, again, the welcome is there, but you have to come through the door. You have to be clothed the right way. There are certain requirements. God's not going to dumb down his righteousness to make himself accessible. He's going to raise our righteousness by clothing us with Christ. And... I think we want it that way, really. You know, we, it's the best way. Any other thoughts, questions? No? Okay. Let's pray. Father, as we hear your words, and it does cause question, it does cause us to search our own hearts Father, you are always pushing us towards yourself. You are constantly 
pulling us up to your righteousness, even though we keep crawling down. You are so patient and so generous. Lord, you do go out into the streets and you do call the bad and the good. And you do clothe them both so that when we are before you, we look the same. It is your righteousness that we are clothed with. And Father, may we take and learn the lessons that you have demonstrated here to the religious people. It's easy for us to, on this side of Calvary, to look back and to look at the religious Jews and to demean them and to use them as examples. But, Lord, maybe those examples need to apply to us as well. May we not lose that lesson. May we be mindful of what you had to say to them in their condition and see if we fall into that condition. If we are standing on our own religious laurels, if we are taking pride in a date and in a prayer and not in our relationship with you. Help us to be mindful of all these lessons and may they stir thoughts and questions in our own hearts and minds and may again they draw us more and more towards you and your holiness and we thank you for that righteousness that you give father that we can get no other way there is no other way that we can deserve to be in this wedding there is no way that we can make our own clothes and father we just are dependent on you completely and we thank you for being so merciful so gracious and so loving bless the rest of this evening, Lord, we lift up um, Joanne to you, Lord, at this time as she uh, is going to be having her brother's funeral service tomorrow. We pray you would comfort her and her family, Lord, that you would bless them with your presence and your grace, your mercy. May you comfort them, Lord. We thank you for her and for Joe and for that family. Bless them, we pray at this time. And we do ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen.